don't be afraid to be as angry or as loving as you can. Lena Horn. Chapter 14. I recorded that section about the riots of 92 one week before the May-June protests of 2020. Pandemic, economic collapse, police brutality. Three horsemen of the apocalypse are quite enough, thank you. As I type, he with the moral stature of an amoeba has continued his Twitter braying. He's emerged from his bunker basement, a special hidey hole deep under a darkened White House, and had a peaceful protest tear-gassed to clear a path to a church to pose for a propaganda photo with a borrowed Bible. His little hands were quite unfamiliar with holding a book of any kind, and it appeared that he was either thinking it would burst into flame or that he was searching for the tweet button. I suppose to calm himself, he called his mentor, Vlad the Defenestrator. Hold on, here's a definition for you. Defenestration, the act of throwing someone out a window. Like three prominent physicians reporting on the status of the coronavirus in Russia. Sorry about the detour. Okay, on we go. After which, he threatened to turn the military on a nation reeling with misery. Now I wonder who gave him that idea. We know he doesn't read. Perhaps his dictator friend instructed him how to on their little phone call. Here I am talking about friendship, and coincidentally, the friend in Manhattan who I mentioned in the beginning of this story just texted me. I will never forget the smell of L.A. burning in 92. Tonight we have a curfew here at 11 p.m. That's the first time in 70 years. I responded, Oh, you New Yorkers stay up so late. Now it's Tuesday afternoon, June 2nd. 2020. My New York friend texted me a video captured from his window of a peaceful march down 72nd Street. He said it went on for half an hour. The curfew in New York will start at 8 p.m. In Los Angeles, it starts at 5. In Beverly Hills, non-essential workers and residents cleared the streets right after lunch at 1. Now it's Wednesday, Wednesday evening, and during the day, before curfew, people laid down, face down, across the Burnside Bridge in downtown Portland and in front of the Capitol Building in Washington. On Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood, the call and response was, I can't breathe, don't shoot, as the protesters held up their hands in surrender. At nine o'clock in the evening in Los Angeles, people stepped outside after curfew and shone a light up into the air for nine minutes, the length of time it took for George Floyd to be asphyxiated, ground into the pavement with a policeman's knee on his neck. Four previous presidents talked about unity. One spoke of hope and transformation through protest. He spoke about the promise and courage of youth. And one, the current one, shouted about domination. By the end of the day, the shouty one had been rebuked by the heads of the military and his former defense secretary, James Mattis. 
We do not need to militarize our response to protests. We need to unite around a common purpose. And it starts by guaranteeing that all of us are equal before the law. Instructions given by the military departments to our troops before the Normandy invasion reminded soldiers that the Nazi slogan for destroying us was divide and conquer. Our American answer is in union there is strength. We must summon that unity to surmount this crisis, confident that we are better than our politics. While I'm time traveling in this chapter, I'm going to take you way back. I get the sense that people don't understand how tightly time is wound, how something that seems forever ago is present right now. This is my story. This is something I will remember until I die and something I just recently told my husband. Yeah, that's a spoiler alert. And now I will tell you. When I was about four or five, I had gone with my parents to visit relatives in, of all places, Charlottesville, Virginia. The year would have been about 1965 or 66. I know it was winter because my father was wearing a Hamburg hat and tweed overcoat. He and I had gotten out of our car and walked up to a sidewalk in front of a payphone and a series of Main Street stores. An elderly black gentleman, also in hat and overcoat, approached my father. He said, excuse me, sir, but I've been waiting here for hours until I saw someone like you. He had a sheet of paper in his hand and he was holding it out to my dad. He told him his wife was in the hospital that this was the number he was supposed to call, and that he couldn't read, couldn't make out the numbers. He was clearly disconsolate. My father and he went to the payphone. My father placed the call and then put the gentleman on the line. He stayed with him, and after the call was over, they shook hands in a way I hadn't seen before, a forehanded shake. And when the gentleman was gone, I asked a million questions, like any kid. And eventually my father said, he couldn't read the numbers, Billy, because he didn't have the opportunity to go to school like you did. Why not? Because his parents were probably born into slavery. Time is wound very tightly. Who knows what the next few days will bring? I'll keep you posted. Now I'll return to the past of the 1990s, and if you're inclined, stay tuned for Chapter 15. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.